great to have your company, as always, uh, on uh, Monday afternoons for a little bit of science in the news and science behind the news. I'm Malcolm Love. I'm joined by Andrew Glester and uh, Hannah Bestwick. And uh, we're going to do our very best to uh, bring you some of the uh, top stories uh, in science uh, that are happening at the moment. There must be so many stories uh, about science, don't you think, guys? But we just, we just pick the very, oh, the juiciest ones. Like, yeah. it's cold, isn't it? I like, mean, certainly. Yes. That's the biggest one that I've heard a lot about. <laughs> that's, the, that's the biggest one. We're, we're going to come to it uh, in, in a little bit, the, 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 the cold. But um, we start off with, imagine if you were uh, a Neanderthal and you had weather like this. I don't know if they did have weather like this to cope with. We're talking 40,000 years ago mm. and uh, northern Europe. Uh, parts of the Mediterranean. I think this story is particularly focusing on Spain. And uh, it turns out that um, uh, we used to... Being um, humans, um, homo sapiens, we call ourselves, literally wise men, um, or wise man, uh, then uh, we we thought that we had got the corner on culture. And it looks, I don't know if either of you have seen this story, it looks yeah. like uh, Neanderthals, who were another species of human, hmm. uh, may have had the jump on us. Yeah, they may have been doing some art, it seems. Yeah. Have you had a look at it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, we've got some, they found three different caves in Spain that have different um, examples of what what could be art um, there are people that, that have even questioned whether or not it could be considered art um, but they found some <laughs> I like the idea of a sort of yeah I think art is art going, is what we no. say is art okay you can't <laughs> tell me that my drawing is terrible and that it's not art just because you don't like it um, but they found three examples that all in theory um, predate the the um, the migration of modern humans into the area which indicates that it could be Neanderthal man who was doing the uh, doing the drawings on the wall. Um, it's paintings in okra on um, on the wall. I think in one cave they found even some shells that have been dyed and, and strung um, together. And it it is something that is quite it's quite interesting that people seem to differentiate ourselves from. Almost what they call them like more primitive, inferior Neanderthals because they're like, well, we made art mm. and that's what makes us special because art doesn't have a purpose. Therefore, it must be an indication of a higher intellect. Yeah. And now they think that they might have found some art that Neanderthals have done. Mm. It's sort of shaking up that idea of ourselves, the modern human, as the more inferior um, intellectual mm. uh, species. I don't really... Um, don't really know how I feel about that. Mm. Um, but what they've done is they found these these drawings on the side of a cave and they have dated, carbon dated, some deposits that have been made over the top of the paintings. And they found the deposits to be about 65,000 years old. Yes. Which I misspoke earlier, didn't yes. I? It's by about 25,000 years, which I often do. I yeah. often plan holidays 25,000 years <laughs> too it late. It happens to so the best of us, that. don't yes. worry. Yes. Um, and what that means is that the, the painting underneath that must be at least older than the deposits on the top. Um, and this predates... Um, 
what we thought the, the modern human was, um, when we thought the modern human was in the area by about 25,000 years because modern human only, only arrived about 40,000 years ago, which is where I think you got that date from. Mm. But what do you guys, well, what I do you guys make well, of it? Well, I was going to ask you, um, Hannah, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I have to let you off the hook here and say I'm, I'm, I don't think, as far as I know, I don't think you're an expert on human evolution. Not at all. So we're not, put, we're not sort of say what's your expert opinion. But do you happen to know how many different kinds of human species, I mean, are we talking dozens, hundreds, I tens? haven't, I have no idea. There yeah. are so many different examples of different um, looking types of humans um, yeah. all, that all existed at different times, lots of crossover and things like that. And I think it's, it's quite, um, the, it's not very clear how one would lead into the other and things like that, because some examples that we have are as small as just um, a a tooth that is different from and to what we would normally expect of all the other species that we we know of and that's it's it's so difficult to put a number on that and d- yeah that's that's all yeah. that's the end of that yeah i i, I think I, my first impression of it is i think about the way we think about animals the way we thought about animals the way mm. we thought about apes other yeah. apes over the over the years and we've we've always tried to separate ourselves with from them in terms of saying we've got culture or we've got religion or we've got fashion or we've got art but actually apes lots of different types of apes have all of those things Mm. or seem to demonstrate that they have all sorts of things so it wouldn't surprise me if back in the day we uh, as in homo Homo sapiens were were pretending that we were better than the than the neanderthals as well and that's just kind of stuck as a story (laughs) just continued over the years Yeah. yeah it's um it's interesting because i remember having a discussion with somebody when I was younger about about that and and how tool making used to be considered a predominantly human trait and then we found out that animals make and use tools and we were like well there must be something else that separates us from them maybe it's maybe it's art and that's the new thing that we're we're using as a measurement to say well that's that's the marker of a modern day human but now it's been associated with somebody uh, a species that was isn't considered part of modern uh, the modern day human species and yeah. it it throws a lot of theories into the air I d- have you ever seen a lyre bird doing its dance yeah I, I reckon there's art in the in the in the animal kingdom i just yeah. i just don't think it separates and the bower birds as well they yeah. make their um, nests in in very personal ways yeah. collecting together things that they think are very pretty and arranging them in a certain way you, you, um and it's penguins all in winds moving rocks around and putting them in different piles exactly yes to uh, attract mates yeah to say Absolutely. yes look i can build this terrific yeah pad for us to live in absolutely yeah. <laughs> i think there's, there's there's art there I, I the other thing that makes me think and I was, bear with me on this but elon musk was talking the other day about his car in space that okay did, that didn't take long did no it, <laughs> it didn't <laughs> did we musk. actually take bets on how long it would be <laughs> um, yeah. but he was talking about his car in space yeah. and he was saying i i'd like to imagine that in billions of years an alien uh at spacefaring uh, species of some sort will yeah. find this car and think, oh, did they worship this car? Was this car art? And and that is kind of what we're doing here, isn't it? We're looking back at this and going, well, it must have been very important mm. art. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe they were just having fun. Yeah, maybe they were just making some shapes on the wall. Um, I think because some of the shapes seem really abstract and then there's there's quite detailed ones within that. So there's a, one of the shapes that looks kind of like the beginning of someone drawing a ladder. But then inside the um, the Rhone, between the Rhones, there's like quite clear drawings of animals. And one person uh, was quoted in the um, 
Guardian article that I read as saying, well, those more detailed drawings may have come later um, and just were added on by Hoban Sapien. Yes. Which kind of discredits the Neanderthal if he did make a nice drawing of half of a pig. But like, yes. it's, it is very speculative because there's, there's no way we can find out. Yes, we can't go uh, back and ask. And no. Well, they'll, they'll carry on their investigations. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. Mm. You know, we, if we can figure out um, how far away a star is or what it's made of, mm. um, we probably can have a good shot at figuring out what happened with our ancestors. We're yeah. pretty, pretty good detectives. Oh, no, absolutely. But I just thought the other thing is if you look around Bristol streets, you'll yeah. see street art all over the place. Yeah. And People if, love drawing on walls. They do. They do. But also, if you, go, you, know, if you kind of, in the future, that was the only thing that was left of our culture, you would think that that was the only thing that we did. It's just the only bit that's left. Yeah. yeah. What else were they doing? What else were yeah. they doing in their lives? This we have no record of. Mm. Yes. Well, one of the scientists did say they thought they'd found evidence that, that even Neanderthal man had adorned himself with um, eagle talons, I think, um, birds of prey um, claws. And that's, that's another, another aspect of it, as well as the, the shells that have been dyed. It's not, not necessarily just one example that we seem to have found, may, potentially even just one individual that's been drawing on a few caves. There's mm. a few different examples of different kinds of art. And something like art as, as an expression of self, which this may be, and art mostly is, is such a difficult thing to measure. Yeah. Because it's so internal. Um, yes. And so you can never really say why somebody's done something like that. This is a story in a uh, Maltravieso cave in western Spain, a hand shape thought to have been created by spraying paint from the mouth over a hand, pre over a hand pressed to the cave wall, it was found to be at least 66,700 years old, and that predates um, our species of human by 20,000 years. And uh, if that turns out to be... Uh, true, that completely changes uh, our view of Neanderthals, you know, uh, because uh, they um, clearly uh, had culture. But uh, as um, we've been saying, it is contested. Um, there's another story uh, uh, this week about the Beaker people. I, I, lo I love this. Uh, where yeah, great story. Beak people. You know, I wonder how we'll be remembered as the mobi <laughs> mobile phone people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yes, the mobile phone people. The plastic the, people, I'm pretty sure. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yes. of course. Absolutely. They say there's going to be a layer of plastic in, in, in rocks in the, like, millions of years in the future, and that's going to be our legacy, which is yeah. pretty yes. sad. That is sad. Yes. So tell us about the Beaker people. Yes, well, the be yes, the Beaker people. Who's seen this story? Uh, I've seen it. Yeah. And um, I, I, can I cut to my favourite bit? Yeah. yeah. Okay, Please so my, my favourite bit was... Uh, essentially, the story is that uh, f uh, the entire population of Britain, almost, was completely replaced by newcomers about 4,500 years ago. So all those people who lived in Britain up until that point, doing Stonehenge and things like that, very shortly after Stonehenge, they their, their descendants were replaced completely by people from... The rest of Europe and, and yeah, places. and it happened quite quickly. So yeah. I think it was ninety percent of Britons were replaced within a few hundred years, which is an astonishingly fast rate. Mm. And over on outside of our little England island, where we were cut off from the rest of Europe, we weren't sort of progressing as much as the rest of 
main the mainland in Europe were doing, mm. and sort of they were they were stealing ahead in terms of technology and the way that they were uh, progressing as a society and, yeah. and everything. And then they brought all that kind of technology over to us. And we had about a thousand, I think I think I said it was about a thousand years of being cut off from Europe, and it really damaged how we were functioning as a country. It's called the Neolithic Brexit in this story. <laughs> I can see why that's your favourite yeah. uh, part part of the story. Yes, it's quite it's quite amazing. Um, the result that these this research has to do with analysis of DNA extracted from four hundred ancient remains uh, across uh, Europe. Um, the lead author, Professor David Reich, from Harvard Medical School in Cambridge. Uh, uh, United States said that the magnitude and suddenness of the population replacement is highly unexpected and the reasons are unclear but of course um, we've uh, come across this kind of result before with archaeological finds for example the Maya people in Central America had this fantastic empire and suddenly they disappear. Mm. Yeah. They they just vanish, and no one knows why. Was there a massive famine? Did all the grain run out? You know, was the crops affected by disease? Was there was there a plague? Mm. Um, what happened? Whatever it was, was so catastrophic they didn't even have time uh, to leave any kind of record that we've found. Mm. And maybe something like that happened here. They were mm. just here. They uh, thrived, and then uh, they disappeared. Um, it says towards the end of the Neolithic period, about 4,450 uh, th uh, years ago, a new way of life spread to Britain from Europe. People began burying their dead with stylized bell-shaped pots, copper daggers, arrowheads, stone wrist guards, and distinctive perforated buttons. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, these, they're literally saying that these are the people that brought us out of the Stone Age. Yeah, yeah, yeah essentially. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Which is amazing, you know. I don't, well, you know. Hope we, hopefully, we don't go back to the Stone Age now. Here's hoping. True enough. And uh, and and the next the next story uh, that we've got is to do with the weather. Yeah, it's cold. Uh, it's cold. cold. It's cold. Um, I think that's uh, how every conversation starts. <laughs> yeah. At least every conversation I've had today has started with it's cold out there, isn't yeah, it? it is. <laughs> so I I have uh, nothing specific on this except to say I know that there's a, a vortex, which sounds very. Uh, day after tomorrow, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, if you've seen that film, it's quite day, an old yes, one day, now. Yes, isn't it? it is quite an old film now. Yeah, um, uh, uh, there's a vortex coming from uh, the north and the east, yeah. Siberian type it's, weather. Yeah, and uh, uh, temperatures are, uh, are plummeting, and um, uh, even to the tip of Cornwall, it's going to be apparently some predictions are it's going to be minus four. Just have to remind people that of course, although this is probably right you always have to be a bit cautious about what the weather's going to do anything after the end of tomorrow uh, because it's so unpredictable it's one of those chaotic systems but we do know that very cold weather is moving over britain so it is likely that it's going to stay we know where it's coming from we see the extent of it and um but there was a strange thing um my, my partner becky and i were looking at some stuff online just uh, not long before uh, I came to the show today and uh, somebody's put a picture up saying, oh, the sea has frozen um, at Western Supermare. Has right. it? To, well, I, I think... Or is it just very foamy? I think that's incredibly <laughs> unlikely. Yeah. yeah. Um, incredibly unlikely because it's not that cold. I mean, the sea isn't frozen at minus 20. No. But um, 
it's possible that uh, whatever somebody was photographing, be, because salt water doesn't freeze like that yeah. um, at that temperature, um, probably it, it was some kind of um, inlet or out, was it oh, yeah, inlet yeah, or yeah. an outlet of fresh water, which mm. may have frozen early this morning. I th- uh, places where it should <clears> be frozen more is uh, the North Pole and Northern Greenland, which has been experiencing temperatures 17 to 22 degrees C warmer than averages at this time of year. Yeah, they're expecting that the North Pole will be above, could could get above zero for the first time ever, since our records began, which is incredibly warm. So that's that's worrying, but also if you look on the bright side, that's where we need to go for our holidays. <laughs> In the winter holiday, go to the North Pole because yeah. it's warmer. Yeah. I think that it's a, it's such a fascinating thing, isn't it? I mean, it's a, I don't want to conflate the two things and you know start saying this is definitely a result of climate change or whatever. But but that those changes in the temperature up there have caused this change in our temperature. Mm. So the global warming, the warming of the northern. Um, Arctic has changed our weather so to cause our weather to be colder. So that is exactly how we've always talked about climate change and global warming, that the global warming would cause climate change. I know people pretend that we changed the name from global warming to climate change. That isn't true. It mm. was always global warming was going to cause climate change. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's, that's kind of what we're seeing here. This is a, a, a small effect. Not a small effect, it's a large effect, but it's in terms of the time that you're talking about in climate. This is kind of a weather effect, but it is global warming causing climate change right now in front of our eyes. So you're listening to Love and Science here on BCFM, and we are talking about science in the news and behind the news. And moving completely away from the subjects that we've been looking at so far, uh, we're going to have a chat about drugs because um, there's a... a uh, a story uh, which uh, we've been looking at, which basically is a survey of all the um, trials that have been done on antidepressants. And um, uh, the, uh, there's, there's been 522 trials. Now, just to be clear about this, uh, this is nothing to do with... Uh, individuals. It's not that they've looked at 522 individuals and surveyed them. They've looked at 522 trials of drugs, which are extensive, which last over several years, where they've been able to collect a huge amount of data. And they've looked at all the different trials of the different drugs, and uh, they've compared them. Uh, This is um, a research team at Oxford University. It's published in The Lancet, which is a a medical uh, journal. And uh, it looks at 21 different types of medication over 40 years. And all of them were found to be effective, uh, so this, this basically it was an attempt to answer the question, do they work? Does it make any difference? Does it improve your life? Uh, they were all found to be effective, yet the authors warned that just one in six patients suffering from depression in the UK received treatment. Um, and uh, so there's an issue that comes out of this. Um, the interesting thing is that they were saying that less well-known drugs, such as, I'm going to, struggle with pronouncing these but I'm going to have a go uh, amitriptyline 
and mirtazapine were found to be have far greater effects in reducing the symptoms of depression than perhaps uh, the more famous drugs such as Prozac and the very widely prescribed drug Citilopram. Uh, they were found to be least effective. Uh, so this has some interesting uh, implications. Uh, I'm not sure to what extent the authors of this report said, uh, well, doctors should be uh, thinking more of prescribing drugs. But certainly one of the uh, conclusions that's been drawn is that basically these things work. Um, about one in uh, about uh, five people um, out of six who have depression don't get treatment, if I'm reading these figures right. Uh, and uh, so there is a call emanating from this study saying, come on, doctors, uh, these things work, let's prescribe them. Yeah. Does, there, is, there is a need for um, better treatment in the UK. There's, they, like you said, about what, only one in six people with depression are receiving treatment for it. And about 41% of people who are referred for talking therapy from, after speaking to their doctors will have to wait about three months before they are. Um, seeing somebody to talk about um, the issues that they're dealing with at the moment. And the one of the things that came out the back of this um, this article was saying that, that doctors should be, or should be encouraged to be less... Uh, the word they used was squeamish about prescribing antidepressants. Uh, if people need them, then they should be allowed to have access to them. There should, should be less um, reluctance to give people these, these uh, drugs, which have been shown... To, to be effective, um, at the very least more effective than a placebo. And I think the measurement they used was um, the drugs of, of the 21 um, antidepressants that they studied, they were found to be more effective if, they, if at least half of the patients in the study had reduced symptoms within two months. And that's also something that's not always well communicated um, because about 80% of people who do start taking antidepressants will stop within the first month without really feeling the effect of, of, of the antidepressant effect. Um, so you need to, you need to quite stick often with it. take these things for longer, right? You do, yeah. um, because it can take, can take a while. Yeah. But as you mentioned, they've come out with this um, league table, as, as they've called it, with um, all sort of ranking the antidepressants as they see them to be least effective to most effective. And, and the most common ones that are prescribed are what's called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are, they're pretty safe, is one of the, one of the main reasons they're often gone to. Um, it's quite, um, quite difficult to cause yourself harm by overdosing on them, things like that. So these, these but, are a particular category of drug? Yeah, they have a particular effect. Um, and it just, I, I believe, so I, I was on citalopram for a little while, and I believe from what I was told um, that the selective reuptake inhibitors, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, just um, reduce how quickly the serotonin is retaken into the stores and allows it to hang around your brain a little bit longer so you're not... Um, sort of feeling sad straight away again. Um, so, but that might be... I'm not sure if so my understanding went, of that is, is, is completely sure. accurate. I'm just going to unpack this a little bit, though, yeah. just to say, so serotonin is a hormone in the, in, the, in the body which basically makes you feel naturally yeah. pretty good. Yeah, serotonin and dopamine are the prime chemicals yeah. in your brain that are associated yeah. with pleasure and happiness. And so these, these drugs are tinkering with that, and so you don't have enough of it or it yeah. goes away too quickly, and as long as you maintain your natural... Uh, levels of, of, of serotonin, yeah. and these drugs will help you to do it, you'll feel okay? Yeah, quite a lot of, um, of, of disorders 
to do with depression, uh, mental illness, are associated with um, issues with the levels of these these hormones in your brain, um, and it's one of the, one of the things that they hope comes off the back of this is, is like I said, the less squeamishness about prescribing it, um, and because people are squeamish about prescribing antidepressants, it comes with a stigma that makes people think that it's not good to be on antidepressants yeah. and that that's not a good thing to do. But, but really, people should be. Um, feeling more comfortable asking for help, asking for an antidepressant if they feel that they need it, because it really can make a difference to the way that you feel. Yes. I mean, just to add to what, what you're saying, Hannah, um, uh, just some figures here. Uh, one in four people will experience, in the UK we're talking now, uh, will experience a mental health problem each year. Um, uh, yeah. The average age of onset for depression, as currently diagnosed, is f- the age 14. Yeah. So 14-year-olds are, are it's being recognised, uh, suffer from uh, significant levels of, of, of depression. And I think that one comes from a better understanding of, of early onset, uh, like when you, uh, depression in young people. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's always been very well understood. No, it's just like young people being young people. Being you know, angsty being teenagers and things. And but actually, yeah. it's a, a much better recognition that, that teenagers are suffering from depression and that getting help in the form of, of an antidepressant may be really helpful um, alongside things like talking therapy. Yeah. And 9, 9.7%... Uh, of British people meet the criteria for a diagnosis of mixed anxiety and depression. So that's getting on for one in ten. Yeah. So this is uh, this is very significant. And, uh, I was just looking at those statistics as well. It's quite and there's actually some good news uh, coming. Uh, to be fair to the government, isn't that they have pledged an extra six hundred million pounds towards mental health by 2020. And 2021. Coincidentally, that's the exact amount of money that this same government cut mental health mm. funding mm. by in 2010 to 2015. Wow. I so it's going it back. Yeah. yeah. Almost like Good. they looked at it, took the cut away and thought, oh, hang on, that's caused yes. a problem. We yeah. better put that money back. <laughs> yeah. And I hope, it, I hope it is a recognition that actually this funding is really crucial yeah. um, and it, it affects so many people and it is a really good thing to be looking at, um, yeah. encouraging people to seek mental health um, assistance and care and things like that because it, yeah. it can make such a huge difference to the way you live. It yeah. really can. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And um, it touches, well, uh, all all our lives if it's not us directly it's people that we 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 care about so these are these are really important issues Uh, there's just a there's another story uh, which has been around for about a week Uh, that's to do with ketamine now we we should just say um, uh, 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 ketamine is known as a recreational drug but um, of course it's uh, very dangerous for people uh, to take that it's not uh, prescribed and it's not supervised uh, by a medical professional but um, it turns out that ketamine uh, ha- has come to be thought of as the biggest breakthrough psychiatric treatment for severe depression in half a century uh, because they found that in as little as half an hour it's been shown to banish severe and even suicidal thoughts in patients uh, with treatment resistant depression so these are people who've tried everything and it hasn't worked mm-hmm. and um, medical professionals have administered and observed people being on ketamine uh, and they've found that uh, even after all other options have been exhausted so these people are you know hardcore as it were in terms of the the treatment it's nothing's having an effect on on these poor people ketamine is is 
breaking all the records. Yeah, its effect is incredible, really. Um, it is. It is only a treatment that can be used at the moment for people who are um, you know, imminent risk of suicide, really, really severe cases of depression that is treatment resistant. Um, but what they found is that it affects, the, the effect that ketamine has on the brain is on one very particular part of, um, part of it called the lateral habenula. Um, which is known to suppress the production so, of... Yeah, speaking of part of the brain here. Yes, yeah, yep, yep. part of the brain called the lateral habenula. Um, and that I part, polished my lateral oh, habenula. did you? Yes, I did. It's looking very I, lovely uh, yeah, at the thank moment. You, thank you. <laughs> that's all right. Um, it's known to... The, that section, that part of the brain is known to suppress other areas of the brain that produce serotonin and dopamine, uh, which we know are the mood-boosting uh, neurotransmitters, the ones associated with, with pleasure and good mood. Um, so if what ketamine does to that part of the brain is it suppresses the habenula, which then stops it from suppressing production of um, serotonin and dopamine, meaning that your production is... is Normalized. Yeah. You, you can have yeah. um, the same, kind, same kind of effect you were talking about before, mm. but much more dramatic. But balancing out the yeah. um, the hormones in, in your brain, or, or yeah. correcting um, an overactive um, habenula, which is what was found is that it was firing too too often. It was having like erratic bursts of impulses in the habenula that was causing the suppression yeah. at an un, unusual rate in yeah. in people with this this very high. Um, level of depression but it has to be they're thinking that this could develop some really amazing antidepressant drugs um but it's going to have to go through such rigorous uh, control because it can be abused as a recreational drug mm. and also they have found that uh, when it's administered it can cause a transient schizophrenic like psychotic state to begin with yeah. for a short period of time yeah. before um, then the the good effect comes in, so has to be uh, has to be uh, supervised. It can't you can't just self administer this at all. Um, and well, yes, yeah, so okay. incredibly hopeful. Really, really hopeful indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Indeed, you are, and it's a pleasure to uh, have you with us this uh, Monday afternoon as we look at science uh, in the news and science uh, behind the news with me, Malcolm Love, uh, Andrew Glester, and Hannah. Bestwick, um, uh, we have been looking at uh, all kinds of stories. We, it's about time we had a space story, isn't it? Though. It is. God, <laughs> it's time we got a space Sorry, story going. Sorry, we so much. <laughs> we, 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 we know that you tried to get Elon Musk in. Uh, yeah. Well, you did. I succeeded. You succeeded. I succeeded. And it put a car in he space. He just needs a bit more does. PR. I'm trying to help him out. Yeah. 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 It's quite low-key, I hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, so, uh, Andrew, Hello. I have to come to you to yeah. introduce this story to us. Okay, so there is. This is just awesome. Anybody who's an amateur astronomer listening to this, prepare to be jealous and also incredibly excited. Victor Busso, you won't know him. He's an amateur astronomer from Argentina, but he has found, using his backyard telescope, a supernova. Right? That's I mean, amazing. That is unbelievable. An exploding star in space. He caught it by mistake actually um, using his backyard telescope now just if you don't know how uh, rare that would be astronomers are searching for these things all the time the chance of him finding one is something like one in 100 million 
Jeez. Wow. Oh. So that's that's <clears throat> like winning the lottery. It is. That's, rather. The, that's the yeah. But then if you think about it, the number of astronomers looking at the night sky around the world on every single day, it's going to happen at some point, isn't at it? At some yeah. point, yeah, you'll and get there. But... Victor Busso is that person. Well, well done, Victor. <clears throat> um, Congratulations. So he's uh, an amateur astronomer from Argentina. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he, uh, he's got a 16-inch telescope, so, you know, pretty pretty impressive as telescopes go. Is that... The diameter yes. of the end of it. That's correct. Okay. Do so amateur astronomers right. have quite big? Do amateur astronomers have telescope envy? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Right. Um, I don't. No. I have a wonderful telescope. Oh, right. Okay. And um, my telescope is is bigger than most people's telescopes. And I, <laughs> um, guys. Well, <laughs> I, I just thought that's what we do, isn't it? I think the wow. leader of the free world says things like that. I'll say it too. Oh, right. um, okay. I, so Victor Busso. Uh, was was testing a new camera he had on his telescope, mm-hmm. looking uh, at a, uh, a a distant spiral galaxy, and took several photo four photos over about an hour and twenty minutes one night, and he saw in the photographs, comparing them side by side, a light appear or a star appear, a mark appear on the telescope, yeah, on the on the images, which wasn't there on the first one at one forty four AM. At two forty AM it was there. At two forty eight it was brighter. At two fifty seven it was brighter again. That is what we know as the first light, the moment that the supernova explodes, he managed to catch it. So when his telescope was pointing at this uh star in a galaxy I don't know how far away, light years away. Yeah. He found just by chance a star exploding. I am incredibly jealous, but yeah. also incredibly pleased that he managed to do that. He and did the right thing because he then sent his images to immediately to professional astronomers around the world who were then able to follow up on that discovery because the science that you can do by studying a supernova as it's happening like that is yeah. just, you know, it's gold dust really for astronomers because, as I say, you don't get them very often. Right, fact. So they turn all their instruments on it yeah. and just start recording all the, all the data. Absolutely. So t- two questions really. One, one's about uh, the nature of the supernova. So what, what's happened there? It's, it's just a, a star which has collapsed and then exploded. This, yeah, this is a Type 2b supernova, which yeah. means uh, which is one of the ones that we know most about, yeah. which is um, a massive star which has lost most of its outer hydrogen layer, mm-hmm. collapsed back in on itself, and then exploded out into space. Wow. Just awesome, isn't it? That is amazing. That. Um, and the flash that he saw was the explosion. Yes, he's, uh, yes exactly. Because it would be incredibly bright. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the closest one to us, which will happen at some point in the next million years is um beetlejuice the head oh, of orion yeah. and uh, which that, could happen tomorrow it could happen it could have already happened when we go oh, out yes, tonight yes. we might see it but uh, when that happens we we reckon it'll be about the size of a moon in the in our in our sky how big that will be um that's amazing it will if if our sun went supernova it would out, go out beyond the earth in terms of its size so you can imagine this kind of massive yeah. star which is bigger than our, our sun this star that's exploded just how big that is in space and why we're saying uh, and if i've got this right you so if you you know orion orion has a belt and yeah. then there's two sort of arms that come up on each side of that mm. it's the top left hand arm is yeah. where beetlejuice is i think yeah if you look at if you look at orion and you have a you have a look at the at, at 
Beetlejuice the star you can see if you look at it t tonight we're getting really good clear skies at the moment with this cold weather if you go out and have a look it, you can really see the orangey red of yeah. that star because it's a big giant red star uh, really beautiful to look at mm. the other thing in uh, uh, in space news is um, that uh, some people at a Spanish observatory which will come to me uh, have been looking at uh, um, black holes black holes in space in galaxy clusters and they looked at 72 galaxies and uh, they are 3.5 billion light years away don't worry too much about that cool lots of galaxies a long way away a mm -hmm. uh, long time ago and um, they've discovered by measuring them using a technique they've not used before using x-ray emissions and radio wave emissions that the the black holes in these galaxies are considerably and I mean considerably, um, 10 billion times more massive than our sun. 10 billion more times more massive than our sun. That's big. That's unimaginably big. And that is um, roughly 10 times greater than we thought the, uh, the, the black holes in that ga those galaxies were before we measured them like this. We measured them using a different technique, did the calculations, thought they were going to be some size. These are actually 10 times greater. So we love black holes, don't we? Everyone loves black we do. holes. Yeah. Uh, we do. Just, <laughs> I genuinely used to not I, be able to sleep thinking about black holes. Okay. When I was about seven years old, I thought we were okay, going to fall well, into one. I've got good news for okay. everyone else, bad news for Hannah. Okay. They are considerably bigger than we thought they <laughs> oh, were. Oh, no. Wow. Um, but that is amazing. That is incredible. Incredible that they've been able to find that out and work that out. Yeah, amazing. Such and, good science. And just before we get away from uh, science news, we've got... Uh, the, I have to tell you this story. This is going from black holes to squirrels. I don't, I don't know how to make that <laughs> link, really. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, it seems that problem-solving... Should, could, uh, is the key to squirrels' success, uh, uh, according to uh, uh, a new study. Um, apparently, um, uh, you know, you, you, we understand that red squirrels, of course, have been pushed out by uh, the grey squirrels, and it's because grey squirrels are just a lot smarter at solving problems. Yeah, they seem to have much better behavioural plasticity, is what they call it, being able to adapt the way they... Um, they forage. Yeah. So if you present them with a, a complex task, so they had a simple task, which was just lifting a lid off a box and getting the uh, treat out, and a complex task, which involved apparently some levers, so it sounds very elaborate. Um, the Almost all of them were able to solve the, the easy task, but the grey squirrels, about 91% of them, were able to do the complex task, but only 62% of the red squirrels were able to do the complex task, which indicates one of the main reasons grey squirrels might be pushing red ones out. And, and talking about clever squirrels, we <laughs> we've got John Ford in the studio. Stay tuned for John Ford after the news. We're getting Bristol. Well, the re Hi, the reason the red squirrels weren't that bright is because they're American. <laughs> oh, no, no, the red toy, the great Yeah, ones the red toy, our own. completely fell apart. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank squirrels. you. Um, by the way, you need to tweet a picture out of your socks there. They're very science. Have you seen his science -y socks? Whoa. Space socks. Look at this Malcolm Love socks. Beautiful look star wow. colored socks. Them. Beautiful. The black background, multicolored stars all over. You need to get a picture <laughs> yes, online. Thank you. Nice thank socks. you for noticing, everybody. Oh, first thing I noticed. I tried like a picture under the table while I talked. Get a picture under the table. Hey, there's there's something that you. You were talking about um, telescopes. I, I came yeah. in at the end of the story. Um, I'm not yeah. sure what it was, but um, one of the, the, the famous people with the telescope was Galileo, of course, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. um, and this day in 1616, a fellow called Cardinal Balamine.
Spain, don't know who he was, but um, he warned Galileo not to hold, teach or defend the Copernican theory, you'll know what that is, a scientist, that is that the Earth revolves around the sun. Mm. Um, a transcript was filed on uh, this day in 1633. It was an inquisition which uh, indicated that he was... Um, also banned from speaking or writing about the theory. Yet he continued, of course, to uh, bang on about it in conflict with the church. Um, he was eventually interrogated by the Inquisition. Uh, seven cardinals sent him to prison, uh, but the Pope said that he could uh, enjoy his uh, incarnation at home. In other words, he was put under house arrest. Uh, in 1633, later this uh, year, in th uh, 1633, and he stayed under house arrest until 1641. Didn't That's stop Extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. I mean, he, he, Galileo, I think I'm right in saying, is the first person to yeah. have uh, used a telescope. And, to look and, at the sky. To look yeah. at the sky. Yeah, yeah. And, you can, and you can still see uh, Gal Galileo's telescope is still in existence. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure but where it is. But it's amazing, isn't it? The, the, the argument between the, the church or the creationists yeah. and yeah. the scientists yeah. still going on today? Yeah. No, in a way. Absolutely. But there was no reason, I mean, there's no reason why the church should have objected to that because uh, it's not biblical you know it's not it's not it's not no, it it's was not, the year 1660 yes but not <laughs> not a necessary thing to believe it's just that that's what they thought and i think it was a political thing rather than a religious thing but maybe, there you go. maybe poor old poor old copernicus Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this day in 1966, Andrew will be turned on by this, the first Saturn 1B rocket, you know oh, what that was. Yeah. It was launched from Cape Canaveral on this Amazing. day in Florida. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, good work. It was a test flight for the Apollo moon missions, of course. Yeah, yeah. of course it was. Yeah. I, I uh, saw a programme about that. I'd love to see a Saturn rocket, but apparently um, they use Rolls-Royce engines in them to get the fuel into the rocket fast enough so, so you know because you've just got to move the oxygen and uh, the hydrogen fast enough did you see yeah, uh, there was a program last thursday on bbc2 called sea cities did anyone see it no, no. i was in it oh, oh. yeah <laughs> because Sorry. they filmed the harbour festival and i was doing the commentary there but um, cool. uh, I, there was a fact i learned there because they, they they followed lots of um people around uh, the the port if you like and mm. the, the the port of Bristol, or Avonmouth, um, it brings in billions and billions of gallons of jet fuel every year. And this massive tanker came in. And they've got a... I didn't realise there's a pipeline that goes from Avonmouth all the way to Heathrow. Wow. Takes oh. jet fuel. Did you know that? I did not, I know. Did not know that. I did not know Amazing. that. Sea Cities. It was on BBC Two last Thursday. Go look do it up. Yeah. Do yeah. you have yourself an, an agent now? An agent? An agent for your film appearance. Mrs Ford. <laughs> Don't forget to stay, stay tuned for John Ford getting Bristol home after the news uh, from uh, Andrew, Hannah and me. It's been great having your company. Have yourselves a very good evening and don't forget to join us again next week.